When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Western and Southern Financial Group. Put our financial strength behind you. Visit westernsouthern.com. All right, welcome into another edition of the Jim Day Podcast. Cam Miller, thanks for playing this. Appreciate it. And thank you for supporting this podcast, however you are listening. And please spread the word. Would you do that for a friend? Thank you very much. I'm excited about today's episode because I wouldn't have this guy on. Because as you know, if you know me, I love history in general, whether it be sports or just plain old world or American history. And this guy is dialed into the history of the Reds. He is the all-around Reds historian, the former executive director of the Reds Hall of Fame and Museum, and the current author of his latest book, Red Leg Memories, the Reds of the 50s and 60s. Welcome in, Greg Rhodes. Greg, how are you? Thank you, Jim. Uh, I'm doing good. I hope you are. And uh, uh, it's good to be here. I've been a big fan of the podcast for oh, a long thanks. time. So appreciate excited that. Excited to be on. Thank you very much. You got a Crosley Field shirt on. That is near and dear to my heart. We're in the former Crosley room right now. That's right. That's right. So All uh, around us. It's yeah, all around It's us. the symmetry. And the Crosley us. Terrace out front. And <laughs> yeah. Big Clue and Joe Nuxall uh, and Frank Robinson and early on Lernie Lombardi. I love uh, it. I yeah, love it. Yeah, now, this newest book. Now, I've said before that if you were to if i was to go back in history because i would you know the when i was a kid the the big red machine was in my wheelhouse the some of the earliest memories as a child are at riverfront stadium but i never got the crosley field experience so if i'm going to go back put me like 56 maybe 56? was that frank robinson's uh, rookie year i think that was it was yeah. frank's rookie so, year Put me at Crosley Field in like 1956, and that would be—I'd be a really happy, dude. Hey, you know the, the the first thing you'd be thrilled and excited to go to the ballpark, going through the West End of Cincinnati, and but trying to find a place to park—that would have been your yeah. first yeah. major challenge because that ballpark, when it was built in 1912, those streets were not built for tra- you know for car traffic. Yeah. They were narrow, uh, crisscross. It was it was difficult parking and. There were a lot of issues around the future across the field, and the parking and traffic issues were really paramount. But being at the ballpark, all right, you're walking up to the ballpark, and uh, just the sights and sounds of, of, of the park, that uh, uh, red brick exterior for yeah. the most part, uh, uh, the, the center field wall. If you parked out along uh, Western Avenue, which is where I-75 goes today, there actually were a couple of entrances on that back side, so you could come in out through the outfield, especially if you're sitting on the bleachers. Uh, but then to get up into the bleachers and the, the ushers, the, the guys, sell, not the ushers, but the concession guys, going through the stands, selling all sorts of Cincinnati beers. Yeah. And, and it was, you know, get, get moody with Hudy. Uh, that kind of stuff, rock and roll with Utapal. I mean, yeah. some of the same things you heard later yeah. on, but uh, th- those were the days when and burger beer and uh, you know, th- so so you had that sight and sound and the smells and the concessions. Of course, that was in the days when you had you know people sitting right next to you smoking cigars oh, yeah, and yeah. Uh, uh, so there was a, there were a lot of sights and sound and smells of that ballpark, and the uh, one of the really distinctive sounds, especially when there were a lot of kids in the ballpark was that the upper deck out uh, b- beyond the bases had been built, uh, had been, it, there was an addition that was added onto the upper deck. And mm-hmm. the addition, the regular seats were concrete based, but those upper deck was metal. 
the upper deck extensions. Yeah. And so you could sit there and pound your feet oh, away. Oh, yeah, makes a noise. And just make, that would reverberate, <laughs> and you'd hear that, that's, that noise throughout yeah. the ballpark when there was a rally going on or after a home run or something like that. That is beautiful. And then you had Ronnie Dale at the organ uh, and yeah. Peanut Jim outside Hawk and Peanuts. Uh, I mean, it was just a great scene at Old Crossley. Oh, I love that. Just the, the, the city of Cincinnati, but a small town feel. I love it. Now, when I, I was working in Tampa, Florida, and I came back to Ohio, came back and started working in Cincinnati in 2000. Where'd you grow up? In, uh, I grew up in Columbus. Columbus. Okay. C-bus so you, you, but you. Oh, I grew you, up a Reds fan. And, it's in my blood. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we you're would down make the, 71 make to the, the track down right. 71 a, right. a, a thousand times right. um, growing up. So, it, you know, it's, it's been in my blood as an Ohio guy. But when I came back uh, and started working and living in Cincinnati, one of the first things I did, because I'm a history nerd, is I went to look, okay, where was Crosley Field? And I was... Couldn't find it. Highly dis... I knew where it was. Oh, you knew where... Yeah. But I was highly disappointed that there wasn't any markers. But I know there's a home plate like in a warehouse or maybe outside of one. But I was so disappointed that they they just kind of wiped away the history and there's very little left, any markers there. Yeah. Well, now, you know, in the last few years... Uh, there's an there's a social service agency called City Gospel Mission that moved on to that site, and they, unlike previous owners, really embraced the fact that they were on that site, and they have, we we cooperated with them, uh, the Reds, the Reds Hall of Fame, in putting together a little Crosley Field. We'll have to go over there someday. Yeah, little is a little Crosley Field tribute, and uh, I haven't been there since you've done that. I yeah, knew, knew that existed. But but you're right. I mean, for years and years and years. I mean, they when they demolished it, they really they took it down i mean they sold off a few you know seats and bricks from the old ballpark and it was a parking lot thing. right and then it was a parking lot for years and then and then there was light industrial buildings yeah. in there but yeah i mean for example those famous historic light towers first night game in major oh, league history yeah, how could you throw what those the away? heck happened to those how could you throw I could never oh. find out exactly oh. what happened to those. I know light there's towers. a few lights that are left from it. Yeah, yeah. but those were those were the, what's were left. Were those replacements? No, but no. those were uh, like little lights, uh, interior lights inside the ballpark. Those were not on the light stands. Ah, oh, see now that. See, and I know <sighs> it's sad. It, yeah. It, I don't know how I cannot figure that out. I know the they were ready pole. to get out of there. I mean, they're like, you know, yeah. it had run its course, exactly. and they're like, ah, well, we don't need and this. They got, we they don't got need this junk. brand new riverfront waiting for them. Yeah. Down. But it is. But it still, is. they should have preserved. I mean, there's so much history that was in that ballpark. That's, yeah. I mean, yeah. Ugh. You see some of the demolition footage, yeah. and it's like, oh, don't yeah. do that. Well, I, you know, I'd mentioned Cam Miller. He, has, he did the theme songs here. He, I know Cam. He's one of my favorite followers. He'll put a, on some pictures of the outline of where Crosley yes. Field was now over a set. So you can uh, see it. top, yeah. Right. So. And you're right about home plate is, in fact, the, uh, the, uh, the home plate is in an alley. Yeah. And it is painted. The outline of it's painted. Right. But you got to know where you, you got to know, know where you're looking. I, I was literally walking for. around for five or ten minutes. Just I'm, I'm like, OK, I, it's probably a, close to here. And it was right. Yeah. I'm like in the alley. I'm like, yeah. this is it. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. I remember we took uh, I did tours there uh, back back when I was running the Hall of Fame. We would do tours uh, mm-hmm. there for group, big groups and walk kind of walk them around the site. And the, the side of home plate always surprised everybody because it just. You know, in your mental picture of it, it was like, really? It was right here? But when we, when we found out exactly where it was, then we had the opportunity to measure, to, to confirm the distance, because you could walk that distance off from there to the left field, where the left field wall was, which was right on York Street, that little alley that ran right behind the left yeah. field wall. And it was right at 330 feet, which the left field foul line was 328. Yeah. So we were pretty sure we were within just With a an incline. Right. And, and, you know, vestiges of that incline survived after they tore it down. They just didn't take it out. But now it's all gone, too. So, yeah. It's, and the scoreboard. It's, with the, but look at, you know, Riverfront. Clock, I mean, they, right. oh, my God. But Riverfront suffered the same thing. I mean, yeah. there's not a whole lot left of, uh, yeah. I mean, the Riverfront site. Uh, one of the things that's interesting when you walk into the Hall of Fame, if you come in through the entrance that faces the ballpark, that's roughly where the left field foul pole was yeah. at Riverfront. And the we outfield. You need to put the foul poles. Yeah, you know, wouldn't that be replica. great? I'd I'd love to see us do that. Yeah. And I'd love to paint the out the the the, yeah. the outfield wall because the rose the guard is the out there where Pete's the, hit approximately yeah, where yeah hit. and first base is in uh, the christian moore line right and home plate is in the parking garage yeah, down yeah, below i yeah. went down there and stood there which i 
uh, chills, history, right? Yeah, I, chills, I, I right. stood there by the home where the home plate was, and you're in a covered garage. I but know. I'm like, I know. But we need to bring the that, great players. You need to bring that marker up to bring the, it to, up. to street level, or yeah. what, or what is now, you know, the, bring it up. Yeah. And I, I would uh, giving Cam another shout out here. He put, he took a picture of where the left field or right field foul pole would be and said. You know, we need to work on this. How cool would it be to put up those foul poles? Yeah, where where they are? Just yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Anyways, that's another project. Well, <laughs> it's it's not you know, and then you go to other cities, and some of them have done a pretty good job of marking their old ballparks. Yeah. Like some of them haven't. You just you never know. And so, and, but now here here you go. The 1869 Red Stockings, right? Yeah. Our our namesake. Right. Where did they play? In front of Union Terminal. Right. Uh, and there is a marker out there. Is at there? least, yeah, there okay. is a plaque I'm, that marks the. The I've never seen that. Been in, in, in well, it's out. Times. You know where the fountain is. It's sort yeah. of at the foot of the oh, fountain, okay. way out there. But that's yeah. So that ballpark is marked, at least the, the site. Right. And we know where Crosley was. But there's a couple other ballparks in the interim that were. I mean, we know we we know where they were, but there's no markers. All right, people, you people influences that influencers. Easy for me to say, <laughs> influencers out there, with a little coin to spend. Can we get this done? Can we band together and? Preserve our history and go back and let's do some markers. All right, that's another tangent. This book, uh, thank you for the copy, by the way. Red Leg Memories, the Reds of the 50s and 60s, your ninth book, I believe. A great Father's Day gift, by the way, coming up. Let's quickly give a plug. Where can can they get this book, Okay, they can get that. Yeah. Uh, You can get it online at Amazon. You can get it. And and in the Reds Hall of Fame, I would recommend you get the Reds Hall of Fame because, for one thing, uh, we should all support the Reds Hall of Fame. Absolutely. And secondly, uh, most of the copies they have in there, I've signed them. So you'll ah. get a signed copy if you get in there. And then Very Joseph nice. Beth Bookstores has them. So, okay. the, so those are the three locations. Awesome. Okay. You've got Pete Rose on the front. You've got Frank Robinson. You've got Jim Maloney. And if you're yep. going to write about the 50s and 60s, yep. that's pretty good. Yeah. And then we got uh, three more guys on the back we there. Got Clue. Here on and the back. we got Clue. One of the most underrated players in Reds history, Veda. Veda, yep. Uh, bench and big clues. So. You know, I'll tell you, in doing this book and talking to fans over the years, I think Veda Pinson was one of the most uh, favored Red players. underrated. Guy was just so popular. Yeah. And I didn't see him play. I'm just going on stories and anecdotes and people that did see him play. Um, yeah. he. You know, like they say that about Cesar Geronimo playing the outfielder, guys that are really mm-hmm. kind of just as graceful, and that's the way Pinson was. He yeah. just glided across the outfield. Well, take me through this book. How is it uh, laid out? You go, looks like year by year? Yeah, we're doing year by year. Um, and in fact, it's modeled a little bit after the first comprehensive history of the Reds, which was a year by year history that came out in 1947. And so when I started this book, even though it says the Reds are the 50s and 60s, surprise, you'll get the 1948 and 49 season <laughs> yeah. too. So uh, I, I had hoped, I had thought, Jim, when I first started this, that I was going to bring it up to current times year by year by year yeah. and I got up through about the mid 50s and realized I was going to have a 2000 page thousand page book yeah <laughs> it was like this, this is, is pretty thick good. as as well and yeah. it's it's uh for those out there there are pictures yes <laughs> so the first thing I have, there are pictures which I I mean I could look at old pictures black and white pictures just all day even if it's just a guy standing there I just love them so you know much. most of the pictures in that book came from the collection of the photos that we have at the Reds Hall of Fame and and they were taken by a guy named Jack Clumpy who was the old photographer for the old Cincinnati Post and Time Star during this time period and he shot spring training and he shot every season from about 1957 through the early 70s. Oh, that's and, and And he kept all his negatives, which we now have digitized. And oh, you digitized? Oh, yeah. that's great. And, so, and, and, and when we got the negatives, they were all in little sleeves with the date of the game on them. I mean, unbelievable. Wow. Unbelievable the way that he organized them and cataloged them. And so, that, anyway, I've been, I was able to benefit significantly, yeah. and well, readers will be able to benefit as they, as they look through these photos. Because there's a lot of photos in here that have not been used very, very much. So wow. I'm looking at a, 1965, which was a great year because some dork that has a podcast was born that year. But <laughs> you got a picture of Johnny Bench here. I'm, I mean, I'm randomly going through this. Wearing number 53. Yes, yes, <laughs> old John. He, well, he got rid of the three. Uh, <laughs> yes, he did. Uh, yes, but yeah, did. when he first came up in spring training there, he was wearing a different number until yeah. he got number five. What is, uh, and this is going to be hard for you to, to uh, 
I mean, there's so much What's good stuff up here. What's your favorite part? You knew it was coming? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not an easy question, is it? <laughs> All of it? <laughs> well, I would say, you know, there's a couple of things that really intrigued me about this book was finding out about some people that you just didn't know much about who played really significant roles. And one of those was a scout. You know, we're to, players get scouted, right? And and back in the and, and now we've got the draft, and so it's a pretty mechanized, routinized thing. But back in the fifties, you had to do some legwork. You were you were dependent very much upon who your scout was and the context they had in that part of the world. And if you look at that Reds lineup in the late fifties, there was a guy in Northern California, a scout named Bobby Maddock. He was a player but not much of a player went into scouting the reds hired him in the early 50s and they assigned him northern california frank robinson is going to high school in oakland veda pinson goes to the same high school in oakland tommy harper jim maloney is out in fresno yeah. this guy bobby maddox signed all of those guys plus uh, many many more like kurt flood who didn't obviously didn't have a long career with the reds but wound up being a terrific player but bobby maddox signed all i mean he's got an all-star lineup of guys yeah. that he signed and wow, when you just look frank back at robinson and maloney and pinson, uh, pinson alone right. is a career maker right but the guy was instrumental in helping the reds uh you know really launch the 60s which was the sort of the prelude to the big red machine the reds in the 50s it was interesting because when i went to, went to write this book my wife is saying to me, now, how many times did they win a pin in the 50s and 60s? Once. How are you going to sell a book when they only won one? Well, <laughs> because she was used to my other book, like about the Big Red Machine, yeah. where we did a little better. But anyway, the, the, so the Reds were pretty mediocre in the 50s. But once you sign Robinson and Pinson, you get young Pete Rose coming in the organization in the early 60s. You get some really good pitching, Maloney. Uh, Jimmy O'Toole, Bob Perky, whatever. They they put that lineup. They they became really good in the early 60s. And the Ragamuffins. They, and although they only won that one year, the Ragamuffin Reds, the Miracle on Western Avenue, the 61 Reds, uh, they still, though, had started to put together what, what, what became the guts of the Big Red Machine. Yeah. And so uh, that Bobby Maddox, influ you know, as it turns out, his influence was uh, really significant. Uh, I, I think in helping the Reds revive and, and become a, much more of a powerhouse in the National League. Tell people how great a player Frank, Frank Robinson, Robinson was. For 10 years, he averaged 300, hit 300, averaged 30 home runs, scored 100 runs, and drove in 100 runs. On, I mean, that was his average season. I mean, if you look at his career yeah. stats as the Reds, he had 10 years, and you look at all those, he had about 1,000 runs scored, 1,000 RBIs, 300 home runs, 300 hitter. I mean, it, you can't find another 10-year stretch. Oh, he was in, washed up, though. He's old 30. Now, that <laughs> is, and, and for folks that are maybe listening don't know that story, uh, <laughs> the reason Frank Robinson didn't have a longer career with the Reds is uh, that Bill DeWitt, who was then the general manager, president general manager of the club, owner of the club, he and Frank just didn't. It was oil and water. They did not see eye to eye on anything. I mean, Frank was a tough guy. I mean, I don't, you probably know of Frank's reputation. Very tough guy, hard edge, great man, but hard edge. Yeah. And, you he know, could, influenced, unfortunately, by the times, which it was not easy being an African-American right. baseball player in a town like Cincinnati right. at the time. Let's just be real about it. Oh, oh, right. I mean, and Frank had stories and, and I mean, all those guys from that yeah. time period did. And I think in part... Frank was sort of the team representative, and a lot of times when the players had gripes, uh, Frank would take them to management, and then Frank with his salary, you know, annual salary disputes and stuff. They didn't sign guys to multi-year contracts, so every yeah. year you kind of had to go through this. And he and DeWitt just were always button heads, and I think after that 65 season when the Reds had great hitting and their pitching really suffered, that he just figured, well, I can get, I can figure, I can get rid of Frank Robinson, my nemesis, my problem, and I can get him, you know, get some good pitching for him. So he made the deal. And during the the negotiations and the trade and afterwards, he used the phrase, "Well, Frank was an old 30. No, oh, that quote and is that just, just set Robinson <laughs> off because Robinson, you know, Robinson didn't drink, he didn't smoke, mm -hmm. he didn't carouse. He said, "You wanted to find me, you go to the bowling alley." I was at the bowling alley. Yeah. Uh, and so to call him an old 30 like he was washed up. Oh, he went on to win the Triple, triple Crown. crown the lead the Orioles to the World yes. Series oh. victory in 66. Oh, oh God, it was terrible. Gracious. And DeWitt, basically, I wouldn't say 
that in and of itself ran him out of town. But Bill DeWitt was uh, on the wrong side of Riverfront Stadium also. And that yeah. I cover that. That's really an interesting story, though, because as you noted earlier, Crosley Field isn't there anymore. I mean, Crosley Field was in its final stages in the 60s, and the Reds needed a new ballpark. And where was it going to be built? What kind of ballpark was it going to be? And DeWitt wanted the ballpark built out north in the northern suburbs, like out around Blue Ash. Right. Uh, he looked at the old Kings Island site on the way up 71 really? north. Uh, he did not want to go down to the riverfront. He did not want to go downtown. But all They were worried about flooding? Well, so. that and plus, you know, the riverfront at that point was kind of a mess. There I wasn't mean, anything It was a there. mess. Yeah. And it, uh, he just did not, he couldn't envision the ballpark down there. The other part of the problem was in the mid-60s, what happens in Cincinnati sports, the Bengals. Yeah. The Bengals sign, you know, we, the mm. NFL agrees to put an NFL franchise in here. Well, that meant now not only you were going to have a multi-purpose stadium. So all the movers and shakers in downtown Cincinnati, they all wanted this. They didn't want to build two stadiums. They wanted a multi-purpose stadium. They wanted yeah. it down on the river. And DeWitt didn't want to do either one of those things. And he would not sign the lease. And so he eventually he sold the club. Oh. So they, the club uh, was sold to a group of local investors, kept the team in town, and their first big move was to hire Bob Housem as a general manager. Hallelujah! Woo! One of the greatest Woo! of all time. I mean, you people like, you know, you talk about Reds history, you bring up like guys like Frank Robinson and Bench and Rose and Morgan and Perez and et cetera. But Bob Housem, it should be listed amongst those people well there were a lot of people that thought bob should have been in the hall of fame yeah uh, as an as a uh, general manager and owner of, i mean he had, he had that cardinal franchise there in the mid 60s when yeah. uh, they won the world series uh, a couple of times when bob was there and then he comes over here and pilots the big red machine for 15 years right uh i mean he just had a heck of a run in baseball he was uh he was he was one of a kind. Came out of small town Colorado. He had never, you know, I mean, he played a little sandlot ball. He Baseball really, hotbed. Yeah. Colorado yeah, back yeah. then. Uh, <laughs> and his, but his family had done well and, and wound up being investors in the Denver Broncos. Or not, I'm sorry, not the Denver Broncos. The Denver, what was the name of the Denver minor league franchise? Zephyrs? I, I don't know. Anyway, yeah. he got involved with the Denver club out there, and they wound up buying Mile High Stadium. Ah. What was what ultimately became Mile High Stadium? Yeah, which and the Reds AAA club. Yeah, there and for so a he uh, that's kind of how he got his start. And then from and and when he was out running the AAA club in Denver, he worked for Branch Rickey because for a while it was the Pirates Farm Club, and he worked for George Weiss at the Yankees because for a while it was the Yankees yeah. Farm Club. Wow. Now George Weiss has more World Series rings than I think anybody. I just got 15 or 18 because he was with the Yankees all during the 30s, mm -hmm. 40s, 50s. And then Branch Rickey, one of the great names. So in, in all of baseball. So you got those two guys sort of as your mentor, you know, growing, coming, coming of age as a, as a young kid in baseball. I mean, no, I mean, that's a heck of a resume right there. Yeah. And, uh, and so the Cardinals hired him and then eventually the Reds hired him away from the Cardinals. Wow. You know, I, I don't know why this popped in my head, but the, the, the stadium thing, Bill DeWitt not wanting to go to the, the river riverfront yeah. and, yeah. and dragging his feet. And unfortunately, Marge dragged her feet because the this ballpark, Great American, can be where the Bengals stadium is. You would have had first dibs and the suspension bridge would be in the outfield. That would be what you'd be looking at. Anyways, that's a total tangent. <laughs> well, I, you're right. I mean, uh, the, the that tax levy passed largely because of the Reds, not yeah. because of the Bengals right. uh, at that point in time. And, uh, and you're right. Marge had, as somebody once described it to me, had a hard time moving from A to B to C. You know, yeah. just, just that sort of direct line thinking that we got to have here to get this right. thing off the ground. Uh, the Bengals are all buttoned up and ready to go, and it was just easier to start. They started with the Bengals, and then the Reds well, not only wound up with the second location, but also had less money. Uh, yeah, involved. and had to wedge it in there, and uh, yeah. Anyways. So it wasn't I mean, not the but not that the you know the Bengal Stadium the, the location obviously very important, but not as important as the baseball view of the outfield. Well, when you've got you know six months of baseball, yeah. Uh, I mean, you got so many more baseball. I mean, games the suspension than, bridge would be in the outfield. How yeah, beautiful that would, would that be? be. Right. But, I know you look at those a, pictures from uh, from Pittsburgh. 
Yeah. With the, uh, oh, no. Gorgeous, and we so, could have yeah. something similar. Now, if you want to get the downtown background, it would have had to go in northern Kentucky. Right, 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 right. Uh, so right. that's a different Which story. That's a that complete and just total tangent by me. I'm sorry, Greg. Let's uh, get back to that's, the 50s you know, but and that's, 60s. You're a history nerd. <laughs> I understand. It's knowing that your door is always open and your path is free to walk. Life can throw a lot at us, but through all the ups and downs, your financial future will be ever gentle on your mind with Western and Southern. From life insurance to investments, our one-on-one guidance is customized for your needs today and in the future. Western and Southern, life insurance, retirement, and investments. Visit westernsouthern.com slash rest assured to get started today. Ever smiling, never gentle on my mind. Jim Day here. I've teamed up with Swift to talk about my favorite seasons, baseball and grilling, America's pastimes, where people come together to talk, to laugh, to revel in the joyous chaos of family and the shared love of these beautiful words. Play ball! And let's eat! This baseball season, ask for Swift Meats at your local grocer. Good food, good moments, one great meal. Come together with Swift. And you know what? That is what happens when you start doing these books. You think, yeah. well, I'm going to do the, you know, I'm going to focus on this guy and this guy. And then all of a sudden, some guy that you, like Chico Ruiz, who was one of my favorite characters from the Reds from the, the yeah. 60s. I mean, he was just a laugh a minute. One-liners. I mean, he, he was a hit on the banquet stage. And you can imagine him today in social media world. He would just be yeah. a hoot. Uh, what a character. What a guy. I've always uh, thought about that. Guys back in the day that were characters, how they would be in social media today. It yeah. may be gold. Like oh, Chico, I bet. Chico Ruiz. Ber- Bertie Tebbets, who was the manager of the Reds in the 50s, he was the one that gave Frank Robinson his, uh, you know, put him in the starting lineup in 1956 and stuck with him. Uh, Bertie, all, same way. They'd say how Bertie would go to New York, and, and he knew all the writers so well. He'd have he'd have stories for this writer, that, and then yeah. he'd have stories for the guy at the Times and the Tribune, and that you know, just he was he was really a, a, he, a consummate baseball man. He is the only manager that I know of in baseball who actually got a philosophy degree. <laughs> he he has a philosophy degree, wow. and and if you think about it, what better job do you i mean what where do you need a philosophy oh, degree more no than being a baseball man you know sparky anderson kind of uh, had a honorary yeah yeah think yeah. of it he was School he was knocks, one of those guys that uh right really had some good sayings yeah uh, could have been a philosopher i think birdie was sort of in sparky's mold feisty yeah. guy but great with the press and, yeah. and great personality right all right big clue big clue. his number 18 hangs forever here uh retired Statue out front, Crosley Terrace, famously wearing the no, no sleeves with the big right. guns hanging out. Right. Can you put into perspective for those that weren't alive then or haven't looked him up, just how big of a name Ted Klazuski, not only in this town, he was a national name. Well, he even got his name on three steakhouses here in Cincinnati, <laughs> right? He yeah. ended up buying steakhouses yeah. here. Not only was he well-known on the baseball field, but in the in the uh, culinary yeah. uh, realm as well. But, yeah, when Clue came up, I mean, Clue had some so-so years when he first got started. Mm-hmm. But he put together three or four years there, and with that physique of his, yeah. uh, he was he was a terrific hitter. You know, he was he had more home runs than strikeouts for the, for a season. He's hitting 50 wow, home that runs. that a novel concept? 50 home runs, and he's only striking out 35 <laughs> times incredible. or whatever. Uh, so Clue had a terrific fall. I mean, he was very popular, very, mm. very popular. And uh, and he was well-known all throughout. Everybody knew Klazuski all throughout baseball. He was the guy. He was the touchstone for interviews with other players. You know, does he hit the ball as hard as Klazuski? What, you know, is he as strong as Klazuski? I mean, he was baseball's iconic he was he was their figurehead for about three or four years there yeah. in the mid 50s yeah and he was on some shows I, i'd look back on on youtube and just see some of the uh the game shows he was on yeah yeah what's my line what's one of my the, line one of the, was one on of there. the best yeah i mean you uh, got to be a big name nationally to be you know granted there were less teams back then uh but you got to be a big name oh too. yeah clue so. clue and then of course uh you know he becomes sparky's batting coach yeah. Uh, he gets hired by the Reds as batting coach in uh, the late 60s, early 70s, and he's there for most of the big red machine years. Oh, yeah. George Foster, you know, I don't know, George completely credits Clue for that 50 home run season, but uh, you know, Clue had Clue, him on this podcast. Yeah. He, Clue he, came uh, 
darn clue had 49 home runs in uh, 54 mm-hmm. and over the last three weeks of the season he only hit a couple he had a bad wrist or something he just couldn't swing and he never never hit the 50 home run mark but he always said he felt like that when he when when he was coaching foster and foster got there that was like that was a little bad. oh that's cool i did he not felt, know he that felt good about that that's very good that is awesome yeah um you got jim maloney on the front first of all great man i've gotten to know jim over the years at some of the events and uh he and his wife are just uh just salt of the earth um but you want to talk about underrated players pitchers and he'd not gotten hurt well and jim you know he, he it's it's one of those things too when you come along and there's sandy koufax and juan marichal and right. i mean i mean he was in some, that era there was some bob gibson there were some right. great 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 pitchers in that era but maloney when he was on when he was right was as good as any of them yeah he just did not have the longevity. I wish he had career. a radar gun back then because oh, they talk well, about triple digits. And not only that, but, I mean, you talk about durability and the difference mm-hmm. the way the game's played today, the way it was played back then. I mean, guys pitching 130, 140 pitches, and uh, one of Jim's no-hitters, they've got the pitch count, and it's 175 pitches or whatever. Yeah. We I mean, had a no-hitter through 10 innings. <laughs> yeah, he threw two 10-inning no-hitters. Yes. Well, one of them. And one of them didn't get credit for. One of them, he, he, he lost the no-hitter in the yeah. 11th. Uh, the top, the first batter in the 11th hit a home run off him. So the, officially, that wasn't a no-hitter. It's yeah. like when Jim said, But you go 10 innings, no, yeah. He said, I retired with three no-hitters, now I only got two. What happened? Yeah. You know, but that's, they changed the rule. And then uh, he threw a 10-inning no-hitter up in Chicago. And uh, and Chico Cardenas won that with a, I think he had a home run the top of the 10th yeah. uh, for the only, and, and, and Maloney held on. Getting Ernie Banks and uh, Billy Williams, two Hall of Famers, in the bottom of the 10th. Uh, I mean, that's, you know, and, and, you know, now you talk about, well, they're seeing the order order for the second or third time or whatever. I mean, so there's Maloney, bottom of the 10th. He's probably seen these guys three or four times that day, and he still gets them both. Well, for those that are just picking up this podcast, go back in the archives for the Jim Maloney edition on this podcast. And he is one of the greatest storytellers good interview. on earth. I'm, I'm sure he was great, great stories. And the story that he tells, I'll, I'll just tease it if you haven't. You go back and listen to it. Him and Johnny Bench, and it involves a, a cup. Yes. <laughs> the, yes. The, the athletic supporter type and yes. him greasing up the ball. It's yeah. hilarious. Yeah. And yeah. there are tons of stories in there. Please go back in the archives and check out Jim Maloney. Yeah. What and Jim, Jim's been great. I'll give him a shout out, too, for, yeah. for the work he's done with the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jim was a Hall of Famer. Uh, elected back in the probably the 80s and uh but he comes to all the events that he yeah. can and he's great with the fans i he, he and and you're right lynn his wife they're lynn, both really terrific a great human being and uh shout out to them and jim's been manager of fantasy camp for, yeah for many oh, years too and so he takes that serious I, he I hear stories about it the guys are on his team he, he takes that serious yeah yeah, <laughs> There's yeah. No goofing around. yeah he gets uh ticked off if you're not yeah. performing uh, anyways, all right. Uh, Peter Edward was it was 1963. Boy, Jim, you see, you are a history nerd. Uh, yeah, 63. Yeah, Pete comes up, not supposed to come up. Right, just second got a, baseman. He got an invite to spring training. Nobody really expected anything. I mean, he'd only been to Double A, hadn't yeah. even been to Triple A yet, and that right. was a time when very few guys jumped yeah. from Double A into mm-hmm. the big leagues, and so uh, he just had a great spring training. Now he wasn't. He didn't have to beat out much at second base. I will say that Don Blasson game, kind of a journeyman second baseman, had mm-hmm. the job. But Blasson game was very popular with his teammates. And Pete, can you imagine this? He was a little bit of a hot dog in spring training. <laughs> yeah, that's where he got his nickname, right? Yeah, Charlie Hustle. Charlie Hustle. Uh, and there were it, it rubbed a lot of the players, the older players. You just ah, look at this kid. Look you at know? this guy. Yeah, a little. Look at him running down to first kid, base on a punk. walk. And spring training so game, he's going in head first to third base. They were not that crazy about Pete, the, the players. But Fred yeah. Hutchinson, who was a manager, said, you know, if I had any guts at all, I'll just put Pete in the lineup and stick with him. Yeah. And that's ended up being what happened. Uh, Pete got the nod. Uh, he was there on opening day. He played the entire season. Wins up winning rookie of the year. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you a funny little story. Pete, um, Pete was in the uh, National Guard at that point or the Army Reserves, and he was doing some time. He, he was not doing time. <laughs> he did that later. Uh, <laughs> he, was, he was doing his reserve duty after. It was the, tax evasion, by the <laughs> way, in case you're wondering. <laughs> uh, 
after the season, he was at Fort Knox. And he got the word that he had been elected Rookie of the Year while he was sloshing suds, you know, doing KP duty at uh, really? whatever. At, he said, I didn't have any champagne or bubbly. He said, I just threw a little more water in the soapy suds, and that's uh, <laughs> celebrated my Rookie of the Year award. Wow, that's fantastic. <laughs> um, well, we got Bench here. When he came up, now you want to talk about a little cocky now. He was. Uh, oh, yeah, the little general. Stories. Yeah, I mean, the little and, general. And, uh, he he deserved that title when yeah. he first came up. He was he was uh, letting everybody know. He, yeah, that's the th amazing thing about amazing. Uh, like a Frank Robinson, age 20 when he comes up. Yeah. Uh, Johnny Bench, age 18 or 19. Uh, 18. Was, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's rookie of the year. Uh, his, you know, 19 or 20 uh, there in the in 68. Uh, geez, I mean, it's amazing the precociousness of these uh, guys to be able to play that well at that age. But but you're absolutely right. Bench had tremendous confidence. And, in fact, I heard a story when he walked into the Reds clubhouse and somebody introduced him to the backup catcher. He said, oh, you better be careful. Bench is looking for your job. And Bench turned around to Johnny Edwards, who was the number one catcher, and said, no, I'm looking for his job. <laughs> <laughs> He's a teenager. <laughs> so I love it. Bench knew what he was looking for. That's for sure. Well, he knew how and, good he uh, was. And you know, by 1970, he's uh, he's rookie of the not rookie of the year. He's MVP. MVP, yeah. And uh, you know, Johnny was drafted pretty late. Uh, it, it, I mean, considering he was he, he was drafted in the second round, and that's not late. Yeah. But. There were seven catchers picked before Johnny Bench in the 1965 draft. How about that? Draft. I want to know. He was still on the board. <laughs> and about four of them never played in the major leagues yeah. at all. But you know, he was from Binger, Oklahoma. Binger, a little playing. small town right. in Oklahoma. Right. You've got to have a scout that is there. To, exactly. I mean, there and wasn't travel ball back then. No. Was, and you know, and the other thing, too, you went on the wrong day, you might see Bench playing shortstop or yeah. pitching, and he was not nearly as impressive out there as he was behind the plate right the reds caught him three or four i mean they saw him play three or four times yeah. they saw him catch and uh and he he didn't start off that high on their board but the more they saw him the more they liked him and they kept moving him up bernie carbo was the number one draft choice for the reds in 1965 they had already zeroed in on bernie as and then bench starts making his way up the board and there was an argument about are we going to move him up now. Nah, let's we'll leave him at number two. And they, did, oh, I mean, so we got the dice. we got we did all the we, we we scouted him well. We had him rated yeah. high, but then we got a little lucky that all those oh, catchers yeah. were I mean, picked. Bernie Carbo almost came back to bite us in '75. Oh, that's, that's right. That's another story that's right. with the Red Sox. All right, this I'm going to put you on the spot again. This might be hard to uh, nail down. '50s and '60s. You got a favorite team? Of uh, the, for the Reds in those in that, yeah, in that and it can be period. it doesn't have to be. I mean, obviously '61 they go to the World Series and lose to the Yankees, and that they took the town by. You yeah, know, and storm. I I would say I, the '61 season was a great season to write about, and yeah. and a lot it brought back a lot of memories to me because I was what 15, and uh, and and you know that was so fresh in in memory in my memories, um, and any seasons with Jim Brosnan who was wacky relief pitcher from Cincinnati, elder high guy. Um, and Jim was the one that wrote the two books that predated Jim Bouton's uh, Ball Four, the yeah. long season and pennant race, two right. of the first baseball diaries. Yeah. Uh, and his stuff was great to look through, too, for this book. I, oh, mean, I he, bet. That was very helpful. But uh, I suppose my, f in, in a way it's a favorite, but it's most bittersweet season was 64, when the Reds came within a game of winning the pennant. They lost the game. They lost the pennant on the final day of the season to mm. the Cardinals. Uh, and the Cardinals, Phillies, and Reds had a three-way race down the last two weeks of the season, and the Reds just came up short. But that was the year that Fred Hutchinson, the manager of the Reds, mm -hmm. whose number one is on the facade right. and, and number retired, he's in our Reds Hall of Fame. Uh, Hutch was a bear of a guy, very aggressive. Uh, it was said of Fred Hutchinson that uh, he, he doesn't throw chairs, he throws rooms. <laughs> Hutch is, Hutch is really a happy guy. His face just doesn't know it yet. He was... Hutch, His face just doesn't know it yet. I'm going to steal that line. I've never heard that one. I can't believe I haven't read that somewhere. Hutch was tough as nails, and the players really loved him. I mean, most of the players really loved the guy. And uh, But Hutch is diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. 
uh, early in, er, in the off season, mm-hmm. 64. His brother was an oncologist of all, I mean, just coincidentally, yeah. out in the Seattle area where Fred grew up. And so he got great care, but it was just too far, too far mm-hmm. gone. And he tried to manage that most of that 64 season, but by August, you know, he, he came out to change pictures of his uniforms just hanging off of him, and it, he was not doing yeah. well. And he finally stepped aside, and Dick Sisler managed the club the last six weeks or so. And then Fred passed away two months after the season was over. So it was a, it was a great season in the sense that the Reds were in a hot pennant race, but then to lose on the last day of the season yeah. and then two months later to oh. lose your manager. That was a tough, tough year. Yeah. So when I say it was my favorite, not really my favorite yeah, year. I know, I get but, it. But, you know, one of the most memorable yeah. and, and, and one of the more interesting years to write about for the book. Yeah, I bet. Now, the Reds did those throwback uniforms yeah. that, that year, which I thought was great. I, I loved it. Um, during this time period, 50s and 60s, and I'll tell you what my, after this, I'll tell you what my favorite uniforms were of the throwbacks, and it's probably not a popular opinion. I don't know why they were my favorite. I'll explain why they're my favorite. But if you had, we're waiting for that. I mean, I am anxious to hear that. Okay. Because, uh, um, what were your favorite unis from this? Period? Well, you know, uh, the the because fans love uniforms. The stories behind the '56 uniform was pretty, or the, the '50. I can't remember now when they made that switch. '54, I guess, when they went to the vest style. The vest, uniform. yeah. And they did that because Clue. Uh, the old uniforms, Clue was getting so too pumped tight. up, too tight, uh, he he cut the sleeves off uh, just arbitrarily, just himself. Yeah. And the next year they'd said, okay, we're all going with a sleeveless look, so they go to that sleeveless vest. And I thought that was really a, that was a sharp look. Yeah. It was, it was not widely popular when they first debuted it. They criticized the guys. They looked like they got, you know, undershirts on. Well, the, the uh, Pete Rose one right here with the name down below the – yeah, and then that, that so looks, they, that's a little strange. They, they kept that they kept that vest style for several years, yeah. and then uh, when when names came in, yeah. when it became more popular, to put names on in '63, I think uh, the Reds. I don't know why. Everybody else had them above the na- the number, yeah. but the Reds put them below the numbers. So yeah. it's a bit, very distinctive look. There, it is a, a distinctive look. Yeah, uh, but yeah. all right, my favorite but, but, uniforms yeah. of the throwbacks. It's because they looked so clean from a distance on TV they popped and even in the stadium they popped and they're very simple and they're very clean but the 1969 uniforms no they, they were the, they, they were the home oh. ones which were just all yes. white with yeah. a very simple logo yeah. yeah and that red belt and they uh, looked so good yeah. that day on TV and in the stadium and that's probably an unpopular opinion because they were well, of that, all they wore, they were probably them. They would people would say, "Oh, they're the most bland." They looked great, and I wish they would go back to that type of look. Yeah, well, it, it, you're right. Sometimes simplicity is the way is yeah. the way to go. Uh, I just remember that bright red belt that, that yeah. was very. It really stood out. I just thought those. You know, there was a great. time. There was a time when the Reds wore blue uniforms. Oh yeah. What the heck is the well, the reds and blue uniforms. <laughs> yeah. That was it was very short lived well, back that, in the early 1900s. But what yeah. are they doing in blue uniforms? But the uh, and this is right in the wheelhouse of the 50s during that scare. The yeah, uh, right. The the, the uh, Cold War. Square, the yeah. Red scare. Where all of a sudden the uh, you know yeah. they were calling them the Russians. They were calling them the Reds. Well, and, and then all of a sudden the Reds tried to get away with it and implemented some blue into the uniform. The uh, that's the re- the reason why the book is called Red Leg Memories is because uh, it was fifty three or so went they, back to it they they went got away from the name Red and went with Red Legs yeah and uh, that was true up until about nineteen fifty eight when they changed it back but you know it didn't really catch on uh, a lot of the press you know you're you're calling the game and you kept calling them the Reds just Reds, out of habit yeah. plus the fact some of the press just refused to do it they thought it was a silly reason because of the communist scare and somebody was yeah. going to confuse the cincinnati reds with the russian reds right uh and so they just never they never acknowledged it 
And so finally, in the late 50s, the Reds just gave it up. But, you know, I think Bob Castellini, I know, uh, was a big Reds fan, of course, growing up in the yeah. 40s and 50s. And mm-hmm. he remembered that Red Leg era. And I always was very fond of it. I just, I love that name. And so, you know, they brought back the Red Leg mascot and Mr. Yeah. Red Legs. Oh, and, yeah. uh, and And went to calling the club the Red Legs occasionally and yeah. stuff. And I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. All right. Now, you were the former executive director of the Reds Hall of Fame and Museum. You had a big part of getting what is now. The, the great outside of Cooperstown, in my mind, the greatest uh, baseball museum. I couldn't disagree. I, 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 will, I will not disagree. <laughs> yeah. couldn't agree with you more. What was it uh, like to put that together? Well, I'll tell you, it was like having a baby. <laughs> 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 we got the call, and it was nine months, man. It was nine months. We got the call to get started. Uh, and then I had done some consulting work and some planning work and mm-hmm. so forth, so forth, but we were just waiting to get the the approval to go let's go with this and i got a call in um january i think from john allen the old the reds uh president there mm-hmm. right at the end of the marge year well right. and for when carl linder owned carl the club Linder, yeah john was was uh, the day-to-day he was the ceo of the club mm-hmm. and john calls me says hey can you uh, can you come to work next thursday we're ready to get started on this museum uh <laughs> So it was a pretty quick, I mean, it was like, okay, we got to shift gears now. We're really going to get going. And so I started in February, I think, and uh, Mr. Linder wanted the museum. Now, this was the year after the ballpark had opened. Originally, the museum was going to be part of the 2003 grand opening, but because of budget issues and so forth, they got yeah. pushed to 2004. And Which so, wasn't a bad thing no, because it, you got your own headlines. Yeah, it was okay. Yeah. Uh, but he wanted to get it open before the end of the season. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, at that point, we just had a shell of a building. That was it. We didn't have any build out. We had we just were starting from scratch. And although we had some exhibit ideas, now we had a real budget. So we had to go back into some of those grandiose exhibit ideas and come up with some other things. And so uh, and then the other thing, Jim, it's really interesting. Uh, Ball clubs don't they're not. You know, you're a history guy. You like history museums. You go to history museums. You see a lot of stuff, right? Yeah. Ball clubs don't keep a lot of stuff. They don't have room for it. They're not in that business. Right. The players usually took stuff, or they would recycle the uniforms through the minor leagues. So when it came time to sort of look in the Reds' vault, as it were, there wasn't a not lot much going there. on. Yeah. So it was like now we got you know fifteen thousand square feet. What the heck are we gonna you know yeah. gonna put in here? And so we had to really go out to the community and and build relationships with the collectors and with former players and with other people in order to get stuff in and originally a lot of that stuff came in on loan and it was great i mean people were very generous and so we were able to you know uh put the exhibits together and uh we we came up with the idea for the wall of balls pete's 4256 hits Uh, and i'll tell you my favorite story about that jimmy o'toole Great pitcher for the Reds in the 60s. And Bob Perky. Bob Perky. Same time Rag him up and steam as well. And uh, you're right. Perky, O'Toole had been in to see the museum several times. Mm-hmm. He knew what the wall of balls was, right? He'd seen it. Yeah. And for those of you who don't, I mean, it's it's uh, there's 4,256 baseballs on the southern wall of the Reds Hall right. of Fame. And it, it just stretches from three three floors high. It's, it's a great exhibit. Yeah. So Bob Perky came into town to visit uh, do for an autograph signing, and Jim invited Bob to come over to the Hall of Fame and see the Hall of Fame. So we're walking through the hall, and we get around to the wall of balls, and Bob kind of looks at it. Perky kind of looks at it with this question mark on his face, and O'Toole puts his arm around Jim, around Bob Perky, and he says, Bob, you see all those balls up there? Those are all the home runs you gave up to Willie Mays. <laughs> Jim O'Toole was another character. <laughs> he man. was great, great storyteller. But uh, met his family, uh, great family. Yeah. yeah, and he had eleven kids, by the way. O'Toole yes, did. I, that's uh, what which, I mean. When I met which, his family, I it took, <laughs> you met it took a minute. <laughs> well, I always <laughs> joked with Jim that that was a club record. I mean, I really don't know if it was a club record, but prove me wrong, right? You got eleven oh, kids. That's a club Jim record. O'Toole, I mean, God, the, the O'Toole family come into town for a ball game; they buy fifty seats. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no question. But anyway, that's so putting great. the Hall of Fame together was a kick. It, it I was, bet. It was I a bet it was dream just, come true yeah. and uh, labor you know, of love. I mean, not even really a job. And the 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 players were turned. You know, just I, I didn't know many of those guys before I started and. Uh, beginning to know them and working with them over the years was it, it was a great experience yeah. and now rick walls has been 
director a lot longer than I was ever director. And Rick's done a terrific yeah, job moving has. the Hall of Fame ahead and keeping yeah. it going. So no, no kudos, kudos to, uh, kudos to all of them, yeah. to everyone yeah. that's involved with it. And if you haven't made your way through, if you're coming to a ball game, even if you're not. You've got if you're a Reds fan, you've you've got to go to the Reds Hall of Fame and Museum. Uh, yeah, in fact, I always say sometimes it's better to come not when it's a ball game because yeah, it's less more crowded. Time. Yeah. And secondly, uh, if you do the ballpark tour, you can get into sometimes you can get into areas of the ballpark that aren't open yeah. on a game day. Yeah, uh, if you're doing the ballpark, they've tour. got. I was blown away. They they've got a little broadcasting section in yeah, there. Yeah, I think you're you can, in there, aren't you? My picture's in there. I'm like, I am not worthy <laughs> to be in this. Not that I'm I'm not in the for that reason, I'm just one of the broadcasters, and you can actually broadcast an inning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, call, a, call an inning with Jim Day. I in, mean, well, seriously, how good does it get? So it's, oh, I walked hey. in there, and I saw my picture. I'm like, I was overwhelmed as a kid that, you know, my first love was the Cincinnati Reds, and still my love, uh, just to be a very small part. I was, I was blown away by it. So I just, I'm just floating through this book right now and the pictures itself are worth the buy oh there's nuxie ah 1952 uh so again he goes through every year the 50s and 60s it is red legs memories the reds of the 50s and 60s by greg rhodes and get it on amazon or the reds hall of fame and museum um great visit i, I need Thanks, to have Jim. you back because what you got nine books what are yeah we? yeah yeah well we still got the old crosley field and you know, we yeah. talked about that a little bit but the uh uh, more about the big red machine years we've got yeah. uh the old 69 the red stockings and the birth of professional the first yeah. night game oh yeah we could we could do another one i will definitely have you back you've been on my list but uh this is fresh because uh, again father's day coming up and it doesn't have to be a father's day gift just gift yourself if you're a reds fan to get <laughs> well, this book you. from greg Rose. i will that. definitely have you back and we will talk about the big red machine and the red stockings and there's so much i can the first big red machine yeah i could yeah. uh I could talk to you for hours and hours, Greg. Yeah. But well, you know, you're a fellow history nerd. I really, I really appreciate. Oh, that I love it. I love appreciate it, man. This will be a. I wish that I had the book before we did this because I could say, "Oh, I love this story." But when I have you back, I'll say, "Hey, oh, I love this story," because I guarantee you, I'm going to be reading this bad boy soon. So, uh, all right, appreciate the visit. That is Greg Rhodes, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this uh, walk back in time in Red's history here on the Jim Day Podcast, and we shall see you next time. Cam Miller, play us on out of here. Baseball past Share some stories